Pastor Walt. He sends his love, but uh, he wanted me to introduce our guest speaker today, who is really not a guest, he's a family member. He goes to the Life Church in Arlington, and we've been blessed with all the work he's doing with uh, Pastor Lane in Arlington, and he's coming to share tonight at 6 o'clock, which we'll tell you more about that later. But uh, just want to uh, join with me in welcoming Paul Gibbs. Amen. morning. It's really nice to be here. I decided to wear a suit today. I hope that's okay. I just sometimes miss being English, so I just thought I'm going to put a suit on today. So um, uh, some of you will know this because the last time I was here, but I became a Christian at school, and um, I was the only Christian in my class of 35 boys, which had a downside and an upside. The downside was that we had a great game called Crucify the Christian which was a brilliant game unless you were the only Christian in the class, which was always quite difficult for me. Uh, the other side was that um, what we liked to do in our class, we weren't great students, what we liked to do was distract teachers. I don't know if you did this at school. And we found there were certain teachers, if you got them on their pet subject, they would just go off on a rant, and the rest of us could just relax and do whatever we wanted to do. Uh, so one teacher loved Bolton Wanderers Football Club, so we knew if we could get him on that subject, the rest of us could just relax. And I was popular because one of the teachers hated religion. I mean, hated religion. And being the only Christian, they would say, Paul, try and get him on religion. Tell him something about yourself. Or, or they would say, sir, Paul went to church on a Sunday. They'd do anything they could to get him. And this guy hated it. I remember one day, um, affected the rest of my schooling. I was in lower school campus. And when I got there, nobody could get into the... Uh, the lessons, everybody was outside along the corridor, probably about 500 boys, I went to an all boys school. And uh, this teacher came up and he had the key to unlock all the real rooms and he simply saw me and he shouted, Oi Christian, because that was his name for me, Oi Christian, come and get the key. And for then, for an entire year, every, went, every time I went to lower school, all you could hear as I walked down the corridors was Christian, 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 it was really kind of, kind of weird. But one day, um, we got on the subject of religion, and he was going off on a rant. And then he said, you know what he said? Everybody's talking. He said, even if, even if, even if there is a God, as long as I'm a good person, I'll go to heaven. And I said to him, well, actually, sir, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can go to the Father except through him. And he was really shocked. He went, no, no, it doesn't say that. I said, yeah, yeah, that's what the Bible said. He says, no, it doesn't. I said, honestly, that's, sir, that's what the Bible says. And then he said this. He said, you show me and I'll become a Christian right here, right now. And the whole class went, and everybody stared at me, stared at him, stared at me. I'm wide open because he's been like on my back for a year. I went, right, right. So I picked up my little Gideon's Bible. Do you ever have a Gideon's Bible? Somebody gave you a little Gideon. I'm opening it and I'm finding it. I'm thinking, I know it's in the New Testament somewhere. And I couldn't find it. And eventually, the silence became a bit awkward and people laughed. And then he simply said this, yeah, I thought so. And he turned his book and got on with things. And I, I will always remember that moment. 
not knowing the word of God, not knowing what God wanted me to say or how I could find that passage. I don't know how confident you are. And tonight we're going to be looking at this whole concept of Bible study. What does it really mean to study the Bible? What is the Bible for? How does the Bible help us? How do we actually study the Bible? The Word of God says this. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, low by t- this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish between good from evil. So there are a few kind of different uh, issues I want to talk about this morning. One of them is that sometimes, I know I did, maybe you do, have a, a biblical misunderstanding. We just don't really understand the Bible. What did it say? We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. What does that mean, no longer try to understand? But let me ask you a question. When is a Bible study not a Bible study? When the Bible's not studied. It's when we open a Bible, we share a passage, and everybody gets to share what they think about it. That's not a Bible study. That's a people study. It's nice and it's cute, but it's not a Bible study. And what I'm seeing is less and less people understanding what the Bible really means and what the intention of Scripture actually is. We don't live in the dark ages anymore when the Bible was banned, but we do live, I think, in the dim ages where we're more likely to know the words of our favorite Christian author or speaker than we are Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And secondly, one of my concerns is there's a biblical illiteracy. It says, in fact, though, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. Saw some stats just recently that were kind of interesting. Um, Let's put that on, and it's not worked. Don't know if you can press the screen. Possibly. Thank you. Uh, Christian parents who say they're confident of passing on their faith to their children. Oh, dear. 36%. Muslim parents who say they're confident of passing on their faith to their children, 85%. That's a concern. That's a concern. Because uh, Muslims are trained better by their leaders than we are, quite often, to know how to share what we believe. And it's a shame because to teach is to learn twice, as they say. Thirdly, biblical authority. It says you need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. There's a lack of biblical authority. Um, I have a friend who was outside a department store at Christmas a few years ago. And while I was looking at this uh, nativity scene, Jesus and the baby in the manger, two, two young boys came, looked at the scene, then huffed and puffed, and one of them literally turned to the other one and said, it's typical, they're even trying to put religion into Christmas now. Just lack of understanding of what Christmas was all about. Um, some other stats. Senior pastors with a biblical worldview. These, uh, these stats come from the American Worldwide Inventory. Around about, oh, it's not working. If we could put the screen on, that'd be great. Around about 41%. Senior pastors with a syncretic worldview, 
59%. I don't know if you know what syncretic means. Syncretic is this whole idea, this concept of um, amalgamating biblical truth with other things that are out there to make the biblical truth more palatable. And of course, young people are developing their worldview when they're young. A person's primary uh, worldview develops before the age of 13, then goes through a period of refinement during their teens and 20s. Therefore, from a worldview development perspective, a church's most important ministers are the children's pastor and the youth pastor. Because that's when we develop our worldview. And this is where it gets really kind of scary. So a children's youth pastor with a syncretic worldview, 88%. And I see that. I work in an organization that reaches young people. We work with youth pastors throughout the world. And what I'm seeing more and more and more is young leaders who know something of the Bible, but don't have that authority or understanding what's the Bible, what was Jesus' intention, and what was simply his instruction, and how it all fits together. And it kind of concerns me, kind of worries me. And we're raising young people, and I know this because so many join our organization, and they come from churches, they love to worship, but they don't love the word. They want to feel God, but they don't spend any time in his presence learning how to feel what God feels. And I think it's partly people like me that are the problem. Because we, we create churches that are so attractive, our emphasis is come and hear great teaching, our emphasis is come and experience great worship, but we don't equip how do we study and this evening, this church, the Life Church, says we're going to change that. We're going, to, we're going to train you how to study the Word of God. So many years ago, this really started to, to worry me and really started to concern me. And, and I began to think, well, what can I kind of do about this? There's so much biblical kind of immaturity. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves. Trained themselves. To distinguish between good from evil. And this is important. Imagine if everybody did exactly what Jesus said. Can you imagine that? It'd be a nightmare, wouldn't it? Have you ever read what he said? He said things like this. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. Who's done that recently? And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. I have no intention of doing any of that. But I don't feel as though I'm rebellious. I feel as though I've learned to understand what Jesus' intention was behind his instructions. What did he really mean? But I've learned to have to train myself. I've been a Christian a long time now. I suddenly realized, I started to change the way I took notes in services. I started to just write down the things that I didn't know or never thought about before. In the last 20 years of going to church on a Sunday morning, I've learned four things. I've learned four things I didn't know from a Sunday morning service. If you are a mature Christian, you've been coming to church for years and years and years, and you don't train yourself, I don't know how you're growing. I don't mean to sound judgmental, but I wouldn't. We're supposed to come to church. You know, we come to church to give, not really to receive. It's a great place to receive. It's a great place to be inspired. But really, we come to bring our gifts to church. There's a responsibility for us to train ourselves in the things 
of God. How do we do that? It's important because God does not interact with us according to our denomination. You know, I'm Pentecostal, that's my background, booth. But God, I don't do something and God thinks, okay, well, Paul's a Pentecostal. Let me, let me figure out what the Pentecostals believe. Okay, and after he stops laughing, he thinks, okay, well, I need to do this. Or Paul's, you know, John's a Baptist, so what does he believe? Okay, well, the Baptists believe this, so I need to do this. He will interact with us according to his kingdom principles, and it's our responsibility to know them. I'm wearing a suit. I'm English. I became an American citizen 20 years ago. We moved to America. Day one of moving to America, I was suddenly responsible to know the laws of the land. If I did something wrong with my taxes, ignorance is no excuse. Because the law is going to deal with me, the government's going to deal with me according to the law, not according to what I do or do not know. And there's some wonderful, incredible things that God has for us, but it's our responsibility to train ourselves and be equipped in order to train ourselves to understand these things. We must understand what the Bible is. You know, we, we have all these things that we say, don't we? The Bible is a handbook to life. Forgive me, I think if the Bible was a handbook to life, in my personal opinion, God could have done a better job. I enter the Bible and leave it sometimes with more questions than I do answers, don't you? The Bible never says it's a handbook to life. But we've made this kind of consumer Christianity. Well, that's what the Bible is. It's a bit like at home, I have a printer. And my printer has a printer manual. My printer manual is so thick, the printer manual comes with another manual to explain the printer manual. And the great thing about that second manual is I never need to talk to the guy who made the printer. Because I've got the manual. I know how to operate the printer. God doesn't want us to look, read the Bible and think, oh, I know how to operate God. He wants us to search and understand and dig into it. And so many years ago, I just spent some time figuring out what do I do about that? How do I help these young people in particular figure out how to do this? And we came up with this concept of understanding Havarim Bible study. Havarim is friends who study together. How to study anything with anyone. This is a picture in uh, Ghana. These young people are studying the Word of God. They're involved in the Word of God, understanding the Word of God, grabbing hold of the Word of God for themselves. Yes, they go to church. They learn things on Sunday from people wiser and more mature than them, but they're being trained to discover things for themselves. And in the Middle Ages, they look back and they try to figure out how did Jesus and how did, how did the, the rabbis and the teachers of the day understand the Bible? And they have this word for it. It's called Pardis. You don't need to worry about the words. But it's a, an acronym. Oh, I think it should have gone to the next screen. If it could be go to the next screen, that would be great. It's an acronym for four words that talk about four ways in which you can understand or interpret Scripture. Some of them are Hebrew words. Don't worry about that. But I'm going to just quickly give you a snapshot of what we're going to talk about tonight. This first step. The first one is the intended uh, meaning should be up on the screen in a minute. It means how we discover the context to discover the point. Let me just see a little, um, let me just try something with you guys. Let me put something on the screen here. Just have a look at that. I'm going to ask you to read it out loud when I count down from three, okay? Three, two, one. Brilliant, well done. 
amazing. It's incredible, it's something weird about the English language. I don't know if you know this, but if any word, as long as the first letter and the last letter are in right order, any other words can be mixed up and you can understand it. Kind of weird how the brain works, isn't it? Okay, let me give you another one. See if you can understand this one. Three, two, one. Nothing. That's because this is full of sailing terms. I know this one. But unless you know sailing and how sailing works and the different things on a boat, you're never going to guess this. Why? Because context is important. Context is important. Studying is not simply just looking at the words and, and thinking, oh, I think it means this. It's studying the scriptures, studying the context. So, for instance, let me give you an example of this. Um, so this happened when... People were becoming Christians, the Gentiles were becoming Christians, and they were getting filled with the Holy Spirit, and it was exciting, and, and the disciples went back, and they went back to the council in Jerusalem and said, hey, it's amazing, these guys are getting filled with the Spirit the way we should, so what should we say to them? What, these Gentiles, we weren't expecting this really, we, we look at what Jesus said and we realize this was always the plan, but what, what, what instructions should we give to these Gentiles? And this was the answer, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, and to us, not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from bloodshed, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Now, Aristotle said, the mind does not think without a question. And I have two. First of all, what about all the other stuff? Okay, to murder. Okay to tell lies? Is it okay to dishonor your parents? What is going on? Why on earth would they say, just concentrate on these couple of things? It seems so bizarre to me. Let me ask you a question. Multi-choice answer. Pastors, you can't answer this because they don't want anyone else cheating, okay? What did the Jews believe about the Gentiles? Did the Jews believe the Gentiles could go to what we would call heaven, a land on her back, the world to come. Did the Jews believe the Gentiles could go to heaven? Three possible answers. Yes, no, yes if they became Jews. Okay, here we go. Get ready? Hands up for yes. Hands up for no. Hands up for yes if they became Jews. Literally no one is right. Every single one of you is wrong. The Jews completely believe. You ask a Jew, find your local Jew, ask them, can the Gentiles go to heaven? They'll look at you and go, of course they can. There's a couple of numbers that are helpful for us to understand. 613, there were many rules and regulations the Jews had because the Jews were supposed to be set apart. But the Jews had what were called the seven Noahide laws. These seven laws that Gentiles who loved God or feared God, or wanted to follow God, had to obey. They didn't have to obey all the 613. They just had to obey these seven. I won't go into details. They're basically the Ten Commandments condensed with an extra one about social justice. That's why there was a court of the Gentiles in the Second Temple. It's why Jesus was so annoyed at the Pharisees. He said to the Pharisees, you travel over land and sea because they would go and convert people. And you make them sons of the devil like you. What did he mean by that? The, the Pharisees would go and they'd, they'd not just lead Gentiles to the Lord, they'd make them convert to Judaism. 
so they then had control over them. And so the reason only these two or three things are mentioned is because the other stuff's just given. They already know that, right? They already know there's the seven ha- Noahide laws. In fact, seven Noahide laws were mentioned in Congress a while back, if you're interested. But the second question is this. Okay, but why then did they say, did the Holy Spirit say, obey the food laws to the Gentiles when Peter had already been told in a dream or trance to get up and eat unclean food in order to connect with the Gentiles? Why was that? Well, the answer is really simple. It's because if the Gentiles didn't obey the food laws, they couldn't have fellowship with the Jews. And so for the sake of the witness, for the sake of the kingdom, they were told, you can eat that stuff, but don't, in order you can have fellowship with your brothers and sisters who were Jews. And one of the most powerful things in the early church was when they broke bread and had meals together because masters would eat with servants, Gentiles, with Jews in the early church. Without that, we miss the point. We read it, we don't really understand what is going on. In actual fact, there's this incredible, powerful principle in there, which is we should sometimes sacrifice our rights and take on a responsibility for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Here's another one. Another way you can interpret Scripture, and we'll talk about how to do this tonight. I've talked about how you can find that stuff out in Scripture tonight. But another one is at the implied level. The implied level is to do with hints. It's when you say something without saying it. Jesus was brilliant at this, absolutely genius at this. He told lots of parables. Some of Jesus' parables were already known. They were just twists on existing parables. What he was brilliant at, apart from telling parables, was remez. So let me just, um, I'm going to show you some pictures. Um, probably takes up a bit too much time. So maybe, but uh, this is by uh, Monet, I think. And this one's by Monet. And this one's by Monet. Um, this one's by, do you know, Salvador Dali. You know, have you heard of him? You're all experts in this, aren't you? Salvador Dali. Salvador Dali. This is Jackson Pollock. He's English. I'm sorry, I, I apologize. I'm embarrassed. I could do that. And this one is by Rembrandt. So let me show you two more of Rembrandt's. Okay, I'm going to show you a really not very well-known painting. I want you to shout out who you think it's by. Three, two, one. You guys are very quiet. Normally people shout. But you're absolutely right. How do you know? Basically, you see the pattern, right? You see the principle. And one of the things that the Lord is trying to help us do when we understand the Word of God is see a principle within Scripture. We see several things. Maybe not, something's not always stated, but we see the principle. And we do that because there's what's called remez all throughout the Bible where something's said without being said. But if we don't notice it, we might get into trouble. So for instance, let's say afterwards, Pastor David comes up to me and says, Paul, you preach with rubbish and you've got a big nose. You're laughing because it's true, aren't you? And I say to him, you know what, David? Sticks and stones. What am I saying to him? I'm saying to him, your words can't hurt me, right? Now, we've just learned about the power of words, so maybe that's not true. But I said, your words can't hurt me. So he would know, and you would know. You would hear me say it, and they'd be like, oh, Paul's, Paul's not bothered by what Pastor David just said to him. But if you're German, you've never heard the phrase, sticks and stones will break my bones, 
and words will never hurt me. So what are you thinking? Well, you're like, what did that mean? Maybe he's threatening him with sticks and stones. Jesus is on the cross, and he's about to give up his spirit. And he says this. Three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I have questions. Did God forsake him? Well, it says it. I've heard all sorts of things. Oh, God couldn't look at him anymore. Does that mean God can't look at me when I'm sinful? God turned his way. I've heard all sorts of stuff. What's, what's going on here? It's a remez. Jesus is hinting. And one of the ways you hint, there's many different ways of doing this. We'll look at it tonight. Is you mention one thing, bring into mind the whole thing. It could be somewhere you go. Jesus does that when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. It could be something you do. It could be something you say. So Jesus quotes, and some of you will know this, the first line from the book of Psalms 22. Because the first line from the book of Psalms 22 verse 1 says or includes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But listen to the rest of the psalm. Just put the next uh, slide on, please, if possible. Let me just read it to you. Um, it says, I am poured out like water. This was written a thousand years before Jesus died on the cross. I am poured out like water. What happened when the spear went to Jesus' side? Water came out, right? All my bones were out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs are surrounding me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all the bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing. Can you imagine if you're looking at Jesus on the cross, and he quotes that first verse. If you're searching, you think, hang on a minute. This was prophesied. A thousand years ago. But what's great is the next bit. Because the psalm goes on to say this. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. But he has listened to his cry for help. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. For he has done it. Or it is finished. You would miss that if you didn't know how to study the Bible, perhaps. Unless you're fortunate enough that somebody mentions it on a Sunday morning when you come to church one day. There's so much treasure. Jesus said, a teacher for the kingdom of God brings out old treasure and new treasure. And what's Jesus saying here when he says this? What's the implication here? The implication is, God's got this. This is part of the plan. Nations, future generations will come to God because of what is happening right now. It is finished. But if all you're going to God for is what you can get from him, I'm hoping he's going to do a miracle and heal me. I'm hoping he's going to do a miracle and feed my family. And now he's on the cross and your main motivation is to get from him something. Then you're like, oh, forget him. I thought he was the Messiah, but hey, what? But if your heart is leaning forward... If you're not there simply to get from God what you can get from him, if you're leaning in, you think, hang on a minute, this was prophesied. And then maybe you go back and you read the rest of the psalm 
and it fills you with some kind of hope and some kind of joy because you don't simply want to feel God, you want to feel what God feels. And you're excited about nations and people that will come to know him. The principle is God revealed himself, he reveals himself to those who are searching. But how do you search? Let's quickly go through the next two. Interpreted, I mean, this is the way you drash. Drash means to search. It's where you put yourself in scripture. You become part of the story. Because the Bible isn't something simply to be read. The Bible will read you if you know how to use it. And there's a mechanism for this. Because the Bible is a two-way conversation. Before I do that, let me just mention something I always mention when I come to church. There's two, in my mind, there's two ways of approaching the Bible. There basically is two ways of connecting with God. Christian-centric, to pursue our vision God's way so he gives us what we want. And to be kingdom-centric, to pursue God's kingdom God's way, so he gives us, sorry, so we give him what we, what we want to give him, what he wants. How does that connect to Bible study? How would you know if you're becoming more kingdom-centric as you're growing in the things of him? Well, the way you approach the Bible will change. So a lot of people look at the Bible, look at God's instructions like a line. We look at the, the, the righteousness. It says to train ourselves in distinguishing righteousness. At one end, what are all the things I shouldn't do so I don't get in trouble, right? Can I drink? Can I not drink? How much can I drink? Can I go to watch a, a narrated film? Is PG-13 okay? What's okay? And on the other side, it's how, how much do I need to do to get a reward? Should I tithe? And if I tithe, should I give for my gross income or my net income? How often should I forgive someone? And we have arguments about this. There's a word for this. It's called halakha. These are questions of the law. They're good things. They're good things to find out. But when Jesus taught, he wasn't a teacher of halakha primarily. He got asked these questions, but actually he was a teacher of what's known as Haggadah. Haggadah are the stories or the illustrations that explain the intention behind the instruction. And tonight what we'll do is we'll show you, we'll teach you the biblical mechanism to put yourself into the Bible story and discover what is God's heart for what he says. What is God's heart for you? A way of reading and understanding and allowing the Bible to explain to you where you are in your relationship with him. These things are wonderful things. They come through the word of God. But it comes down to this. When we're Christian-centric, or mainly Christian-centric, and we study the Bible, we search for what's in God's hand. But when we become more kingdom-centric over a period of time, we begin to search for what is in God's heart. Um, when I was six years old, I had my first girlfriend. She was called Tracy Clark. We had a whirlwind relationship for two days. The first day, I don't know if I can say this in church, the first day she took me into long grass, kissed me, asked me what I wanted to do when I was older. I said train driver. And she said, when I'm, she's six, when I'm older, my mum says I'm going to be a stripper. That's the kind of girls I knocked around with in those days, it seemed. On our second day, she brought me a present. She brought me, I don't know if you remember these, some of the men might. It was a little green parachute, plastic parachute guy with a little parachute on him. Ever, anybody ever have one of them? Yeah, who needs Xboxes, right? So 
I thought, she came down and went, oh, Tracy, this is fantastic. Thanks, Tracy. And there were some steps leading up to my garage. So I ran up the steps and chucked it, threw it, sorry, threw it off the garage. And it popped. Oh, this is amazing. Oh, Tracy, this is fantastic. I ran down, picked it up again, ran up the steps. Did the same thing. This is incredible. Like, my, I, was, I feel like I'm a soldier. I did it about six or seven times. It was great. And then afterwards, I said, Tracy, this was amazing. Tracy. Tracy? She wasn't there. I went to my mum. Where's Tracy? Tracy was very upset, Paul, because we were more interested in her gift than we were in her women, eh? <laughs> but isn't God the same? How would you feel if you... People only came to you or only read about you what they can get from you. If, if the things you say are treated like a manual so we can operate him. Actually, he wants us to come to know him, to feel what he feels and understand what he understands. And finally, we'll finish with this. The inspired level. The inspired level. Sued means secret. This is where we get a revelation the others are where we research and God teaches us. This is where we spend time with God in a certain way where we allow God to speak to us. It's about contemplation. And the best way, the best way to hear the voice of God, I don't know if you've ever heard the voice of God, maybe not audible, but you've sensed the voice of God. Have you ever heard God? And if you have heard God, how do you know it really is God? One of the best ways to find these things out is in the, in the context of studying his word. Paul used this word or this concept to describe his revelation, his understanding of Christ. He'd studied so much but missed it. And then he had that time when he, he had a revelation. Maybe you've not had that revelation today. Maybe you don't know Jesus today. Maybe you don't know him. Maybe you come to church but you don't know him. And there's that revelation that happens where suddenly the eyes were opened and it makes sense. It starts to fit together. And tonight we will look at how that happens. What's the mechanism for that? How do we study the Bible? I long for a time when Christians are really empowered by the Holy Spirit in their community. I'm, this is going to sound awful, I'm fed up of hearing things like, just don't, don't look to the left or the right, just follow him. It's good, it's true. But there's some powerful stuff that God can say us, through us. Words of wisdom, things that we couldn't possibly know. Words of knowledge, things that we couldn't possibly know. We're going to speak through you. And the, one of the best ways I've ever seen of, of learning how to listen to God so we recognize his voice is, is in the dynamics that we'll talk about this afternoon. Let me finish with this story. Uh, there was a young man who... Um, was very poor, he had some children, couldn't eat, and so he decided one day he needed a job. We had no skills, and he saw a lumberjack company, and he, he knocked on the door, and he asked to speak to the manager, he said, listen, could I be a lumberjack, could I be a lumberjack for you? Um, I, I'm sure I can chop down trees, I mean, anybody can do that. And, and the guy said, I'm, I'm sorry, we don't have any places, and this guy got on his knees, he begged, please, I've got, I've got children at home, I need to feed them. And so the manager took pity on him. He said, okay, okay. He said, here's an axe. He said, get going. And on Friday, we'll give you, we'll give you your wage packet on Friday. And if, if you do well, maybe we'll keep you. So this guy wants to do a really good job, right? He really wants to do a good job. So he starts on Monday chopping down trees, 
And even when everybody else is taking breaks, he thinks, I'm not going to take breaks. I'm just going to keep on going because I want to show how good a work I am. Wednesday afternoon comes, the manager comes in and says, here's your money, you're fired. He says, why? Why am I fired? He said, because your production is far less than everybody else. You started off good, but then you slowed down. You're obviously quite lazy. And the guy said, no, no, no. He said, I've been working through my break times and my lunch times constantly, constantly to try and do a good job for you. And the manager says, that's interesting. He says, give me, give me your axe. And the manager says, yeah, here's the axe you gave me. And, and he runs his fingers on the blade and it's completely blunt. He says, don't you realize that in those breaks, the other lumberjacks are spending time sharpening their axe. Your axe just got blunt. And he gives them a second chance. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like that. When I was in that classroom, I felt blunt. I had an opportunity then to share with this teacher in front of 30-odd witnesses the Word of God. And he said to me, if it's there, I'll believe. Now, I don't know about you. I genuinely believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And in that moment, I was completely blunt. I had not been prepared. I tried, but I had not trained. Can I encourage you? Let's stop trying and let's start training. Let's train ourselves to distinguish between good and evil and train ourselves to handle the Word of God that one day all of us, in our own little way, can be teachers of the Word and affect our community with God's Word in a powerful, awesome way. Because people here need to hear the Word of God and tag you're it. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and your love. We thank you that your word is so incredibly powerful. And Lord, there is so much treasure deep underneath those written words on that page. Lord, may we not simply want to feel you. May we want to feel what you feel. May we be inspired, not just to live a good life where we can be blessed, but may we be inspired to live a life that changes our communities. May we not simply seek blessing, but may we seek anointing. Lord, may we be teachers, ones who share the good news, and we can do it well-equipped with knowledge and understanding. Lord, help us to commit not simply to our plans, but to your plans. In Jesus' name we ask it, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for listening. I appreciate it.